Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are talking about Liège-Bastogne-Liège and Tour Romandy. We'll talk about the men's edition of Liège with Tadej Pogacar winning that, becoming the first rider since 1980 to win the Tour de France and Liège in the same 12-month period. Try to put that performance into perspective. Uh, We're seeing something we haven't seen in a very long time. And we want to digest that properly, and we'll break down the performance uh, and how that happened and how teams like Ineo screwed up big time. Also, I'll talk about the women's race with Demi Vollering taking uh, her first big World Tour win behind some really, really impressive teamwork from her SD Works team. And we'll touch on the Ineos, uh, the Trident, the Rowan Dennis, Garrett Thomas, and Richie Port are back in action, beating up on poor journeymen at the Tour of Romandy, just like they did at Volta Catalunya. Um, we'll talk about the decision, uh, why they keep lining up against just absolutely terrible fields. Um, is this just bad luck? Like what's going on there? And, but first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free weekly edition. If you like the podcast, this is a no brainer. Sign up for it right now. You'll love it. There's also a daily paid version during grand tours, um, twice weekly during non-grand tour weeks can also get some discounts to brands like Tejo Cycling and Curé of Switzerland uh, when you become a member. So check that out at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. Well, back to the race and we'll dive into Liège, the men's edition. Liège is a really, really long, uh, hard race, incredibly long and hard, very boring. Like one of the most boring races on the calendar. I really don't like it generally. Um, The entire Ardennes week I find to be so underwhelming. Uh, But so this is a long race and it's a six and a half, six and a half hour race with like 20,000 feet of climbing. So incredibly difficult, really nothing happened until 36 K to go when they hit the Labrador climb. Uh, you, it's just like Milan and San Remo without the beautiful scenery and the ending that built into an exciting credenza. But with Labrador with 36 K to go, Ineos took the front and this is all, uh, I have this all in the newsletter from the free one from Monday. I have screenshots in here to reference what I'm talking about. So if you need a little bit more of a guide, check that out. So Ineos goes to the front with 35 K to go as they hit Labrador. Um, Labrador used to be like a really important climb in the race and Liège in general used to be more exciting, probably just because there was no controls on doping. So you could take whatever drugs you wanted and you could attack from really, really far out. And it was kind of suited the the super doped era more than the current era, whatever we're in now. But Ineos, I think in some kind of misguided attempt, I heard them say after the race that they, they wanted to like bring bring prestige back to La Redoute. I mean, obviously that's not what you should be doing. Your your goal, your objective should be to win the race, not to like satisfy some like Twitter fanboy desire that La Redoute becomes an important part of the race again. I mean, this is like, uh, if that really was their logic, that that's incredibly silly for a team with like a 50, $55 million budget should just try to just try to win the race. Um, don't try to go after some greater existential meaning with your performance. So they ramp it up on La Redoute. There's a big, big Peloton, huge Peloton. I mean, it looks like nothing has happened up to this point. So but they immediately, immediately whittle it down from like 35.5K to go until 35.3. Like the, they've split a group off the front um, and it's three, four Enios riders and like four other four other riders with like Max Schachman, Tade Pogacar. Uh, the only thing about this is it was like an impressive display of strength, but Pogacar looked like he was not really under that much difficulty the entire time. So I, I don't really know what they're trying to accomplish. Did they really think that they were going to drop Pogachar here. He was the best climber in the world. No, no rider on their team is stronger than Tadej Pogachar. I understand you have to try, but I would have tried later. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of get into that as we walk through this breakdown a little bit, this notebook. So they get to the top of the climb with like 32K to go, 33K to go. Um, they've really, really sh- sh- like whittled this group down. Alejandro Valverde is like completely isolated, which you could say that is a an outcome that they achieved. Uh, but I think Movistar is such a weak team that they, he just would have been isolated anyway with the normal pace up the climb. They didn't have to do this. Um, they didn't have to go all in, uh, burn all their matches just to drop some Movistar riders. But that is significant. So Valverde is no teammates right here. Um, and then between the climb kind of crests around 33K to go, and then there's another climb at 24K to go. In between that, Trek is working for reasons unknown to me. I have no idea. But the gap to the break is it looked far on TV. I think it was like two minutes at the bottom of Labrador, which is 
pretty pretty big gap for that little time left in the race. By the time they get to 24K to go, it's like down to a minute. Um, it, it seems long. Like you could be watching that race thinking like, oh, these guys could stay away. Like, no, they can't stay away because one of the big flaws of Liège, um, I, flaws for viewers, maybe not for riders in the race, is it's too easy, like quote unquote, easy to come back in between the climbs where Tour Flanders, if a group got away with 35K to go, the, the Peloton's never seen them again. No, it's it's a very very selective race because the the points in between climbs are very hard, arguably harder than the climbs themselves. But you get to Liège and it's just too. I don't really know the reason. I mean, I probably have to go ride these roads to fully understand it. I don't quite get it. Um, it's just like this funny nuance of the difference between the Flanderian roads and the Wallonian roads. But it, maybe it's just because they're big and wide open. Um, the race isn't on from the gun in the way that Flanders is. Uh, the, the roads are wider. Uh, there's bigger groups. You have four teammates. But it's just too easy because Ineos whittles it down with like 35K to go. And then by 24K to go, everyone's back together. Not everyone, but everyone who matters. So that the Peloton's kind of swelled back up again. Teo Gegenhardt attacks. Jonas Vinegard goes with him. Primoz, it, it kind of built, this little group gets away. Pogachar's there, but Roglic isn't. And Roglic, I mean, uh, this is, he's, he, he misses both, both important moves. So we probably know he's not on a great day. But Valverde and Alaphilippe also miss it. Carapaz is in it. He attacks out of the group um, with 21.5k to go for a solo attack. It looks really cool on TV. It looks like, oh, this is game over. But what might not have been totally apparent is he was going the final stretches into a headwind, and everyone knows this. You can see the riders. There's like a GIF, a GIF in my newsletter where you can see all the riders talking into the race radios, um, going back to the team cars, trying to figure out what's going on. And the team cars are telling them, like, don't panic. There's a Peloton right behind you. I mean, they're just like 10 seconds behind them. So everyone just kind of sits up and waits for the Peloton to come, for the reinforcements to come. Carapaz is putting a lot of energy into this solo move. It doesn't stand a chance. I think everyone serious knew it. Everyone in the rates knew it. That's what made it so weird that Ineos, this seemed to be their trump card. I mean, this was, they're playing their final card with 20K to go. I mean, that, that's really silly. I have no idea why they're doing that. He goes into the super top position at some point. I mean, I've seen a lot of like controversy around this. He's clearly on the top tube. His butt is still touching the seat. I think he was counting on that to get him out of trouble, but... I think he just hasn't read the rule. If you read the rule, you, if you make contact with the top tube, you're out of the race. The rule is pretty cut and dry. So even if he stays away, it, he doesn't win because he would have been disqualified anyway. So that makes this move like doubly stupid that they put all their eggs into this basket and then he would have been DQ'd anyway. Uh, to kind of quick step, they get enough riders back to the front to set pace, which makes sense because Julian Alaphilippe is probably the pre, probably considers himself the favorite here. Um, Key thing is UAE has three, three really strong riders here. They have Tadej Pogacar, Mark Hershey, and um, David Formolo. And they, but they're really paying it quiet. I was actually really impressed with UAE. They, I mean, they're not doing anything. They're not making any noise. So at 13.5K to go, now Carapaz is caught and dropped. Ineos is not in a great position. They, ha they still have, like, um, I think Adam Yates, Teo Gegenhart, and Mikhail Kivkowski, but Yates and Gegenhart have just put in really, really, really impressive performances and been drilling it from 35K to go until 22K to go to get Carapaz off the front. So they don't really have anything left. And Mike Woods attacks. Uh, the, the riders at the front make it. It's like Mike Woods, David Goodall, Tade Pogacar, Julian Alaphilippe, Alejandro Valverde. I mean, they make it. It's just kind of the first five guys in the front of the race. Uh, Two UAE guys are, are behind them, Formolo and Hershey. They don't make it. Roglic is behind them, so he doesn't make it. I mean, there's just that split between Valverde and the two UAE guys. Once Woods is away, Woods keeps driving. Woods really, I listened to an interview with him after the race. He really thought he could win this thing solo, so he is driving hard here um, to get away by himself. And Kivkowski misses it. So if you think about Ineos, they look like the strongest team in the race with 35K to go. They use their entire team to break the race up. And now they missed the final move. I mean, this is a huge mistake. Uh, I, I don't totally, it would have made a lot more sense to have Carapaz in this group. You know, if they really thought Carapaz was their guy and he was strong enough to solo to the finish, they needed to, you know, focus on getting him in this final move or at least attacking here, trying to do what Mike Woods is doing. That makes a lot more sense than what they tried to do. And UAE, I mean, the, to me, they're the team of the race. They don't flex their muscles, you know, 
just to, just to show how strong they are. I mean, they're not even really doing anything. Pogachar's in that group. He's barely working. He's just taking a few token pulls. And you have the Formulo and Hershey, two really, really strong riders, can just sit on Roglic's wheel anytime he tries to have someone pull, pull through. They're sitting right on him, so no one else can pull through. They disrupt the chase that way. And they also kind of remind Roglic they're just sitting on his wheel. If he goes too hard and exposes himself too much, they'll just counterattack him and drop him. And in the front, if those guys sit up, they know that Mark Hershey's you know, breathing down her neck. So if they sit up in the front group and try to protest because Pogacar's not working enough, then Hershey's going to catch him and probably win. And then Pogacar knows that. So he gets to kind of, uh, not a free ride, but he's definitely getting an easy ride in this front group, knowing this is all gravy, that if they get caught, he's got two, two teammates ready to go. So this is like the best situation to be in for UAE. Um, Pogacar's in a really, really good situation here. I mean, compare this to Valverde. His team has worked all day. They're on the front like all day for really, I have no idea why, but they just wanted to show Valverde. They really wanted to support him and that he could win. Um, so if he gets caught or dropped or loses, he lets the whole team down. There's no one in his team left behind. There's no one chasing. He's just like a man on an island at this point. So he's working a lot. He's, he's making a few mistakes that you don't normally see him make. So really, it's just those, those guys rotating from 14K to the finish. Woods is really working hard. I mean, really working hard. It, I, at one point, it does look like he's distancing uh, Pogachar and Valverde. I don't know if they're just playing games though with each other on the climb. You know, trying to try, all both trying to be in last wheel, and they got a little gap that way. I have a hard time believing Pogachar and Valverde were actually about to get dropped since they're both so strong in the sprint, or at least Pogachar was. Maybe not Valverde, but. Um, I, and this is a mistake in my opinion. If Mike Woods really thought he could drop everyone and sold to the win, then that just doesn't seem like great advice he was getting from the team car. And he was saying that he was, he knew he was stronger than everyone else because he was drilling it on the climbs and no one was coming around him. So that encouraged him to push even more. But if he reverse engineered that statement, well, maybe Mike, those guys aren't coming around you because they know that if they don't come around you, you're going to push harder thus pulling them for free and increasing the gap to the chasers behind. Um, it just stuff like that where I, I, I do wonder, like, what, what, what guidance is he getting from the team card here? I mean, that seems like someone should be telling him, really, really harping into his ear that he needs to meter his effort. And just because those guys aren't coming around, it doesn't mean they're not strong. Uh, th- that's, th- that's, like, really seems like fl- flawed logic to me a little bit. Uh, they get into the final K. I saw someone on Twitter say, uh, Philippe's on the front and he, everyone kind of sits up and they force Valverde to the front that it was like pupils putting tacks on a teacher's seat. It was like these young guys beating up on this old guy. Um, it was a little bit like that. I have no idea why Valverde goes to the front here. I, I don't understand it at all, actually. Um, he loses the race right here. I mean, you can see I have a, like a video, a video clip in the newsletter. As soon as he takes that front position with the K to go, the race is over. And Pogachar's sitting up. I mean, really, really going slow, really going easy because he's not stressed at all because Mark Hershey has broke away from the chase group and is barreling down on these guys. So if they get caught, Hershey wins. So Pogachar has got no stress whatsoever. Um, Van Verde is just stuck on the front, stuck on the front into this headwind sprint. It's a terrible place to be. No idea how he let himself get in this position. Mike Woods is right on his wheel. And Woods really thought he could win this sprint against Mount Verde. And, I mean, to be fair, watching on TV, I thought that's exactly how it was going to play out, too. And, and this is just like a trap you can get put into. You don't totally, you're not, you're not seeing the whole playing field because Alaphilippe and Pogachar are sitting really far. I mean, they're second last wheel. They look way too far off the front to, to win the race. But you just have to trust that the, aer- the aerodynamic advantage of being that far back is going to pay off once the sprint starts, especially into a headwind. That's exactly what happens. Valverde launches. Woods comes around him for like a fleeting moment, and I think he has it. And then Alaphilippe and Pogachar, I mean, they just like slingshot from the back, and they're flying around these guys. I mean, it's not even, they're, they're going two different speeds for sure. I mean, it's not even a competition. And it looks like Alaphilippe has it. Um, eerily similar to last year when Alaphilippe was in that front group, and he was just riding all over the road really erratically. Took out the front wheel of Mark Hershey and Tadej Pogacar. Uh, probably one of those two guys would have won the race last year. Uh, goes around him. He's flying in the sprint. He sits up to celebrate early. This is last year. And then Roglic beat him. 
he doesn't set up this year. I mean, he is, and to his credit, he's he's sprinting through that line, but Pogacar just, just ice in his veins. I mean, he probably doesn't hit the front until 25K to go and then pulls ahead a few meters to win. It was like one of the most ice-cold sprints I've ever seen. Super impressive, especially coming from a guy who's a Grand Tour winner. Not Grand Tour, I mean Tour de France winner. Usually those guys do not have racecraft like this. I mean, you can never imagine um, Chris Froome or even Lance Armstrong pulling off a win like this. I mean, as evidenced by those guys never having won Liege best on Liege. I mean, even Alberto Contador, great rider, great champion, probably one of the best Grand Tour riders in the history of the sport. I mean, he's never done anything like this. So this is just like this is a flat sprint like a pancake flat sprint and he's beating legitimate fast guys i mean valverde and alaphilippe are fast fast guys in these sprints um valverde has won one grand tour in his career alaphilippe's never going to win a grand tour i mean these are not grand tour racers these are like these are stage hunters and like one day specialists and they're getting beat by tade pogachar who's a who is basically doing this race like he's moonlighting as a classics rider as a one day rider so impressive. I like, I cannot stress how impressive this is. I mean, this is, I mean, literally no one's done this since 1980. Bernard Hino, I think, won the tour in 1979, and then he wins Liege Best on Liege in 1980, the last rider to do that. I mean, so we're talking about like ancient history. Like the sport resembles 1980 in zero ways. Like it has changed so much. And then Pogachar is able to do these, uh, these versatile feats that I thought, I really thought were impossible in this modern era. I mean, this is like Eddie Merckx. I mean, actually, Ed, the only other, the, the last rider to win Liège and then go on to win the tour is Eddie, Works, Eddie Merckx in 1972. Eddie Merckx, the, probably the great, I mean, not probably, hands down the greatest male cyclist of all time by, by a lot. So if he wins the tour this year, I mean, we're talking like people talk about Woot Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, uh, Peter Sagan, like they're on the level of Eddie Merckx. They're not. I mean, because they're not, none of those guys, I mean, maybe Woot can win a Grand Tour. I mean, certainly Vanderpool and Peter Sagan are clearly never going to win a Grand Tour in their career. They're just not that type of rider. Um, Woot Van Aert, it's, it, I guess it is to be seen, but he probably won't win a Grand Tour. Um, I thought it was impossible for, for Grand Tour winners to be able to race one days like this. Um, and not just a Grand Tour winner. I mean, Valverde has won a Grand Tour. Valverde like is a one-day specialist who happened to win a Grand Tour. He like gritted it out and won because he's that good. He's that talented. He's that good of a racer. Tadej Pogacar is the best Grand Tour racer in the world. I mean, by, by quite a long shot currently. I mean, he's the best climber in the world. He's probably one of the best time trials in the world. And he's winning monument one days. I mean, this is really, really, really unprecedented stuff in the modern era. I mean... Even Lance Armstrong in his like doped peak was not doing anything like this. I mean, then Lance really wanted to win Liege and he never could. So, and something else to remember is that 22 years old, Tade Pogachar already has a better Palmares than Garrett Thomas, who is going to be 35 in a few weeks. So, the, I, I just think it kind of speaks to a, there's like a cognitive dissonance where he's spoken about, he's talked about, written about, like he is on par with Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas and other uh, Grand Tour contenders, but what we're seeing really is unprecedented. He already has 23 professional wins. Garrett Thomas has 22. He has six Grand Tour stage wins so far in his career. He's only started two ever in his career. Garrett Thomas has three Grand Tour stage wins. Um, he's won a monument and a Grand Tour, which is something that, which I believe only Alejandro Valverde and Vincenzo Nibali have done in the professional peloton. So incredibly, incredibly unique performer and something that I think is is kind of being undercovered a little bit where riders like Garrett Thomas are giving given equal if not more press but um Pogachar already is a more accomplished rider than Thomas. I think it's like hard to overstate how impressive this is for Tadej Pogachar. And I got some heat for not harping on how impressive Valverde's fifth fourth place was. Um he is 41 years old. He was, it was his 41st birthday and he got fourth um against some some studs. So that is impressive. I don't want to take anything against that. I just feel a little weird about... So Valverde's just not as good as he used to be. I mean, he's just not winning races anymore. It's impressive that he's getting results at these races. It's, it's more than impressive. I mean, arguably, it's all we could be talking about. It's like that impressive. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. A 41-year-old competing at this level in cycling is... It's, he's the only one that's ever done it. I mean... 
there's been a few guys like Dave Rebellion who are on really, really small pro teams, borderline amateur teams, and are like 47 and still racing. But no one, no one has ever competed like this at the age of Alberta is. So that's like a big deal. Um, but I would argue it's a bigger deal what Pogachar is doing. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Um, I think if you if you really look back on the spring, we thought the story was going to be Vanderpool versus Van Art, and that we're seeing this rise of the greatest rivalry in, in cycling history, et cetera, et cetera. Those guys are very good. That was like very fun for a few races. Um, I almost think Pogacar's like, he's like tipped over that storyline. I mean, I think he is maybe the most impressive storyline from the spring where he looks so good. I mean, he looks incredible. He had once stumbled the tour of the Basque country. We've kind of like litigated that and relitigated that. We don't need to talk about it anymore, but his individual performances have been really, really, really impressive. And winning this race is is truly, truly mind-boggling. I, I, I don't really know where we're going from here. We're in uncharted waters at this point. So um, I think he'll go on to win the Tour de France. I have a hard time believing any anyone can beat him. He's just that good. I mean, we saw Roglic, who uh, I think this is his last race before the Tour. He just straight up got dropped. Got dropped twice. Missed both of those moves. Really nothing else to say about it. It's the first time he's kind of looked, he's kind of wobbled this spring. He started the season really, really hot. I guess it makes sense that he's running out of juice, and that's why he's taking two months off racing before the Tour, because he knows he's cooked. So that makes sense, but and, and Roglic still could beat him. It's not impossible, and it's not impossible that Primoz Roglic wins the Tour de France, but it's just all signs are pointing to a Tadej Pogacar second Tour win. I mean, this kind of kind of reminds me of the year 2000. Um, if you remember, Lance won the Tour in 1999 out of nowhere, super unexpected. Um, there was a lot of a lot of journalists made a lot of uh, qualifications saying, well, Jan Ulrich wasn't there, Marco Pantani wasn't there, he just won it because it was a weak field. He comes back and and it was sold. The 2000 tour was sold as this like, well, Lance is Lance is going to get beat. No way he wins, and he just comes back and smokes everyone. And this is kind of what uh, it reminds me of at this point. I think Pogacar is going to win this tour uh, quite easily, but it's it's not it's not guaranteed. The only rider who can beat him in my mind is Primoz Roglic, and he got dropped here. So that's not a great sign. That's that's not a great uh like a lasting. That's not a great impression to leave uh, himself and Tadej Bogachar. The, the next time they're going to race against each other is at the Tour. So, yeah, not exactly going out on a high note. But, I mean, let's not write him off because of this. But uh, it's, it's, it's not a great sign. Um, Ineos, I, I talked about this a lot in the newsletter. I got a lot of responses about this. Um, someone pointed out, you know, maybe they, they increased the pace on La Redoute to drop Valverde's teammates and isolate him. You're like, well, they definitely did that. They accomplished that. I think that would have happened anyway. I don't think that was needed. I definitely don't think that's how they should have used their strength. They were the strongest team in the race at 35K to go. And they just squandered it. They missed the move. You can't miss the move. That's rule number one of bike racing. You know, don't miss the freaking move. And they did. It actually boggles my mind having more time between the race and now. I don't. I don't quite understand how that happened or like why that was deemed appropriate, not appropriate. Why that was deemed acceptable by the team and the media. I haven't really seen them had to have to answer for that. If they were racing in Movistar jerseys, like they would, they'd be a clown show. You know, everyone would be dragging them right now. But they seem to get away with a lot of tactical miscues just because they're Enios and people think whatever they do, there's a plan behind it. It's kind of like the New England Patriots where can kind of like suck drafting for eight years, but people assume there's a, some type of rhyme to the reason. Someone pointed out that, you know, they asked like, well, if they just would have had Carapaz attack where Woods attacked, could they have won that way? That they definitely could have. And that's what I would advocate for. I just say, well, shift that strategy 20K. So instead of, instead of the show of force with 35K to go, do the show of force with 15K to go, you know, and then launch Carapaz at the top of that climb with Woods. He probably, you know, he doesn't get away clean. He's not going to get away solo because those guys are strong and they're not going to let him go. But at least he's in that move then. And at least you have a chance. And if you have Kiefkowski behind, um, let's say you have Kiefkowski, Yates, and Teo Gigginhart in that group behind, um, Carapaz can sit on. He doesn't even have to work. So, and they're going to pull him to the line. You know, he's probably not going to win. There's probably no way they win this race without Tom Pickock, to be honest with you. But at least he has a chance. And we saw that no one thought Tadej Pogacar could win that sprint. 
we saw at the end of 260k of a race that hard, it's really all bets are off. I mean, there's there's doesn't matter how fast you are, it just matters like what you have left, um, your your resistance to fatigue. So if if Carapaz can can you make that move and sit on, you know, maybe he could win the sprint. You know, he could probably he probably could have podium. David Goodall got David Gadu Goodall got third. You know, he's not a fast sprinter at all. So he showed that Carapaz could have been on that podium for sure, which is a big result for him and in, in Ineos. And I think maybe that's Ineos has struggled in one day races. I mean, before really Tom Pickock and Kiyokoski are the only race riders who have like serious results and monuments for the teams for the team. And I wonder if sometimes it's because they're not willing just to kind of play the game and race for the podium. And then sometimes you win from that, but you know, worst case scenario, you get third. I think that it's just like this mentality they have of like every, we're going to race everything like it's a grand tour and they don't really have the ability to like modulate and change tactics based on a different course or race type type. Just other notes from the race. Mike Woods got fifth. Um, a lot of people like him. He's, I mean, because he's a North American, we can relate to him because he kind of sounds like us. You feel like you know him. I think people probably tend to, I think they kind of tend to write off non-English speaking writers too much if they don't speak English and that like, well, these are people too. Tade Pogacar is maybe a nice guy too, but um, people love Mike Woods and they kind of felt bad for him for not winning. I actually think spin zone, this is a pretty good result for Woods. He is, he's never finished out of the top 10 at Liege, which is really impressive. Um, clearly shows how strong of a rider he is. This is probably the hardest one day race on the calendar. So if he's consistent, if he's never finished outside the top 10, it shows us just how talented he is and how strong he is. Um, he's, he has gotten second one year, but the, that used to be on the uphill finish. The finish used to be uphill and that's where he got a second place. He's an uphill finish specialist. So I would say to get fifth on this flat finish in that group is really impressive. It's actually probably one of his most impressive results of his career behind his uh, third place at world championships, I believe. Yeah, third place at the 2018 World Championships. I would say this is up there with that result. I mean, this this was like a World Championship level event. Um, and a lot of these same guys will be duking it out the World Championships. Maybe not this year, but the Olympics this year for sure, if it happens. Um, Mark Hershey shows, I mean, he finished sixth, seven seconds back. He was breathing down the neck. He was with Tej Benut and Balka Melema. I mean, great result for Balka. Um, Hershey's kind of had a really, really troubled, he got kicked off his team, apparently, according to his team. Um, had to find a refuge at UAE for a few million euros a year. <laughs> I, I think that story has been a little played a little bit weird where they say he got kicked off his team. He was making like a hundred thousand euros a year. And then now he's getting paid like 2 million euros a year. I think he's fine. I think he's fine with that outcome. Um, but he had some, I don't know. I, we never got a straight answer. I reached out to the team, never really got a straight answer on what was going on there. Um, I heard like wisdom teeth removal. Uh, back injury, hip injury. Uh, he he switched his pedals and his shoes, and it's been messing up his hip. Uh, that's actually rule number one in pro cycling that you actually never want to change your contact points, even if you switch teams. It'd be very rare that you would do that. So uh, that story was a little weird. Didn't totally add up to me. Um, I understand. You know, you change bikes. You know, you change teams because you have to for the money. So it means you have to change bikes. So. You know, I could understand maybe the bike wasn't fitting him that well, and that was causing some problems. I guess I could believe that, um, but he's looked pretty bad um, this year until this race. So um, we got Hershey back, so that's exciting. You know, there, there's actually a scenario where he wins that race. You know, people weren't really paying attention to him, but if that group messes around more and he blows by him, they're probably not catching him. Uh, Matty Motorich is another he's like the secret Slovenian no one ever talks about he gets top 10 at this race for the second consecutive year really good result for him um but on let's let's go to the women's edition so i, I also did a newsletter about this i'm trying to do more uh, breakdowns of women race women's racing as well um it's, it's actually pretty pretty fun and interesting because it's a different group of riders but it's a lot of the same courses so you, you get to see it's almost like a a different like running a simulation of something and everything works out a little bit differently and you get to see what could work and what wouldn't work um i thought the women's race was well first of all demi volering she's like a 24 year old dutch rider has been almost winning a lot of races this year but hasn't won one and then finally gets her big win um she's on sd works which is like the super strong women's team 
It's led by Anna Vanderbregen, the reigning world champion. She is, she's retiring, retiring at the end of the year and becoming a coach of that team. So she's like trying to be a coach on the road as opposed to riding for herself. She absolutely could have won this race. Um, so super impressive. She decided that she just would rather help someone else win. I don't think it, you rarely see that. I actually don't know if I've ever seen that before. A lot of times you'll see riders at the end of their career when they're not able to win, then suddenly become, well, I want to help other people win. But uh, yeah, I've never seen a rider this strong just ride for a teammate and help them win in a major, major race. So super impressive. SD Works was the strong team. Demi beat um, Anamik Van Vluten. And the sprint at the end of the race, um, Elisa Langoborghini was third. Um, SD Works was a really was really strong. It's actually a, kind of a mirror image to the Ineos. It's like, well, what if Ineos did things differently? It actually could have worked out similarly. The problem is Ineos didn't have Tom Pickcock is their Demi Vollering, and he didn't start the race uh, due to injuries sustained on Wednesday at Flesh Malone. So it's not an apples to apples, but it just shows... They, they definitely had a plan. They wanted a singular outcome. They wanted to get Demi Vollering in a small group at the finish with Anna Vanderbregen there and have Mariana Voss be dropped. And you could tell that's really all they cared about. Nothing was going to kick to, to push them off this path. They were all in for this. And that's exactly what they got. Um, with 37K to go, they're approaching Labrador. They have a rider off the front, which was really smart because then Trek has to get on the front and work. I mean, this is what this is what it's key. Um, what a lot of teams don't get, what Ineos certainly didn't get. You know, you can control the race without putting all your riders on the front. That's exactly what SD Works did here. They just they put a one rider off the front, so the rest of the riders can sit and easy while another team does work and tires themselves out. I mean, it was it was actually picture perfect. They hit Labrador. Um, as soon as, uh, her name is Neam Fisher Black, I think, was caught, and then Ashley Molman counterattacked as soon as she's caught, um, really blows the race up, it gets whittled down to a small group right there. Um, Cecily Utrip Ludwig gets, goes away with her. Um, there's a really select group, including BTP podcast guest Kristen Faulkner, behind Lucinda Brand from Trek then bridges like a K or two later. She attacks and bridges up to the leaders because it's actually really don't have an option. If Trek can't miss this move after controlling the race that much, you know, they have to have a rider up there. So Brand makes a really, really impressive bridge there. Um, but, and, and it looked, you know, if you were just watching this race casually, you'd be like, well, these three are going to win because they have a 34 second gap with 23K to go. No way they get caught. Um, and this was actually a really interesting like case study in how leads can fall apart incredi- incredibly quickly because you have SD Works. Um, I just have a screenshot in the newsletter. You can see them like they're all just chilling, like straight up chilling in that in a group in a peloton um, that is getting bigger and bigger by the moment because riders are coming on from the back, catching on. So they're in a really envious position. They're in a great position here because Molman starts sitting on because she can't. She's probably not going to win a sprint against um, Brand and Ludwig. So. She really wants to blow this this breakup, um, which is a funny thing to to think. You're you you're in a breakaway. You've worked hard to get up there, and your goal is to to blow it up. It's actually something that a lot of teams. It's a really misunderstood thing about cycling, and I don't think enough teams do, particularly at the junior and amateur, like high level amateur level, do. They get in a break and they think like, well, this is great. Um, I'm just, I'm I'm gonna win. Um, but you know, it's like uh, sometimes you'll see like directors hold up signs on the side of the road that say like, can you win? Now, if the answer is no, you got to blow this thing up and you have to let yourself get caught. It's exactly what Molman does. She starts sitting on, um, which immediately breaks the trust and the cohesion. The gap goes from, and, and the, the logic here is, so if she sits on and they pull her, she probably wins because she's been doing nothing for the last 20K. It's, it sets it up for a win-win where, well, you're going to give me a free ride or we're going to get caught. And that's exactly what she does. So in 2K, they lose 15 seconds. In another 2K, they lose the rest of their lead. They're caught. So 34-second gap goes out the window in four kilometers, basically. Um, really crazy to watch that gap melt. With 14 go, 14K to go, they hit the last climb of the day. Chantel Vanderbrook, Vanderbrook Black, who is the 2017 world champion on SD Works, is leading it out for Anna Vanderbregen. And this allows Vanderbregen to sit on a wheel. Um, and I thought... 
this is key because at Flanders, if you remember, Vanderbregen drilled it on the second to last climb to try to do exactly what they what they did here. But Vanderbregen had probably been on the front for too much. She also might have been sick. So important to remember that. That might have been the difference between this race and that race. But the the fact that Chantal Black could hang in, where she got dropped earlier at Flanders, the fact that she was present here was big because it means Vanderbregen can get to the climb in great in great position and first essentially, but with but not having to work. Quote unquote not having to work. She's still working, but she's she has a draft. She's sitting on to some extent. So that means when the climb starts, she's fresher and she immediately just just goes to work here. Just like starts drilling it, starts whittling the group down. It's just riders are pop, pop, popping off the back. Faulkner gets dropped. You can tell that her rear derailleur won't shift. Um, I'll get into this later, but I would almost bet that her derailleur went into crash mode because she crashed earlier in the race um, and it doesn't allow you to shift. So actually a huge bummer for her because I think she could have played in the sprint at the end and I don't think she would have gotten dropped um, before between this and the finish if this wouldn't have happened to her. So huge bummer for Kristen Faulkner. Volering stays with them. Key. That's, that's like a key part of this plan for SD Works. If they can't drop Volering, if they drop Volering, the whole day's done. They did this for nothing and then Vanderbregen has to like uh, improv and figure out what she's going to do. But they drop away a lot. They drop a lot of a lot of people. They drop Voss um, and Ludwig, which is key because they can't bring Voss to the line. That's like the one thing they can't allow to happen. So they they've got rid of Voss. It's like objective number one taken care of. Objective objective number two is make sure no one else has teammates, and no one else has teammates. So it's it's going great so far. Cassia Niadova takes over at the front, which is even better for them because she's not going hard enough to drop either Vanderbregen or Volering. So this couldn't be going any better for them. Um, it gets a little weird when they get over the climb with like, there's like a short descent into a steep pitch. You get descent with 13K to go. And then it's a little, it's like a, a, a downhill and then flat to a climb with like 12K to go. Uh, Volerine waits up for Molman who got dropped on this. I, I think this is the only thing they potentially did wrong all day where it allows Voss and Ludwig to get back. I think the marginal gain you get from having moment in that group isn't worth sitting up and waiting. Um, that would be my only critique here. Um, with the 11K to go, Van Vluten attacks because she knows if she wants to win, she has to win solo. So this is the last chance she has to go. Everyone knows she's going to go. She drops, she does drop everyone except for Vanderbregen. So it almost worked. Um, and if she does get away, it is egg on SD Works' face again. You know, they would have set the race up for just like they did at Flanders. So it's key that Vanderbregen doesn't get dropped here. She's just glued right to Van Vluten's wheel, which acts like an anchor on Van Vluten because if she knows that if she takes, if she keeps going, Vanderbregen's just going to sit there and then out sprint her at the end. So it really takes the impetus, impetus out of the attack. Uh, and they drop, also key thing is they drop Boss and Ludwig on this steep pitch because they've had to work so hard to catch back on. It's like, once you get dropped once, you're in trouble because you have to work so hard in between the climbs to catch back on that you're just going to get dropped again as soon as, as soon as the next climb happens. That's just like, uh, don't get dropped for the first time because it just gets harder and harder every time. Uh, they get dropped here. And then Vanderbregen just takes the takes to the front and just drills it. I actually don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like this. She, I think, stayed on the front for like the last 12K. And the gap goes from like 10 seconds to 30 seconds up to a minute with the K to go. And not only is she driving the wedge between this group and Voss, but she's keeping riders like Van Vluten from attacking. Like Van Vluten and Longro Borghini maybe would attack normally, but with Van Bregen setting such a hard pace, they can't do it because she'll just reel her in. Um, she's even able, she just keeps it cooking through the final K. She can lead out Volering. Van Vluten goes with like 250, 250 meters to try to catch out Volerine, it's really her only shot. She gives it a go, but Volerine knows exactly what's going to happen. Probably being told by Vanderbregen exactly what to do. She stays on her wheel and then wins the sprint pretty easily. Um, so really just uh, all around really incredible tactics from SD Works. Can't say enough about it. Um, Longo Borghini gets third. She's been getting a lot of crap for her pretty terrible tactics this spring. I think this is actually one situation where she, she probably maximized her result. I don't think she could have beaten Vullerine or Van Vluten because if she attacks early, she can't drop Van Vluten or Van der Bregen, um, and she can't beat them in a sprint. So third place is sometimes it's kind of a bummer to accept, but sometimes third is as good as you're going to get. So 
I actually thought she did a good job to maximize her potential result there. An interesting thing about the men's side of the sport so far this year is that every monument has been won by a rider under 30 years old. No rider over 30 has won a world tour one-day race, and only one rider has won a world tour race of any kind. That's Primoz Roglic, who's 32. Um, there's definitely a shift towards younger winners on the men's side. Volering being 24, uh, in the past few years, women's cycling has just been dominated by quote-unquote older riders like Van der Bregen, uh, Van Vluten, who's 38, Lizzie Dignan. And so I got a question about if this is like a shift uh, youth movement as well in women's cycling. It possibly is. I mean, Van Vluten hasn't looked as strong as she has in the past this year, which makes sense at 38. I mean, it's hard to keep up your performance. Even women who can hold endurance performance later into their life than men or peak performance later in their life. That is, that is pretty old to be winning big, big races. It has happened before. I think Kristen Armstrong won the Rio, the 2016 Rio Olympics time trial at like 41 years old. So certainly it's been done, but it would make sense that she's slowing down a bit this year. And Vanderbregen clearly, I actually, I don't even know if Vanderbregen has lost anything physically and she's, Oh, she's only 31, so definitely retiring early. Probably retiring just because she's sick of uh, doing the same races over and over again. I doubt she's actually experiencing any type of physical decline. But I think we need to wait until after the Olympics before we draw any real conclusions because the Olympics are such a big deal for women cycling since they don't have a Tour de France that some of these established stars could be going into the season a little bit subdued, trying to build up to that. Um, and if you think about like, if you go back to her interview with Kristen Faulkner, she does, she's not even on the Olympics team. She doesn't even know if she's going to go. So, you know, this is her Super Bowl versus like a writer like Anna Vanderbregen or Anna Meek Van Vluten knows they're going to the Olympics. So, you know, if they wanted, they could enter the season a little bit undercooked and build towards that late July, early August timeframe to peak. So I would wait until after that until we draw any real conclusions about women's racing um, undergoing any type of U-ship. Obviously, at some point, they have to. I mean, I don't think we could have, like, Van Vluten's not going to be winning races at, like, 48 years old. So at some point, a younger generation has to come through. And Volerine is definitely showing that the, ta- the talent's there. But, I mean, even, like, Cassia Niodova, Volerine, and Cecily Udrip have looked, I think they've looked the best they've looked their entire careers this year. So definitely seems like they're getting better and the established stars are getting a little bit um, worse. I hate to say worse. Um, just just not the same level they've recently been. All right, so Tour of Romandy, the prologue was today. It was a in Tour of Romandy. Switzerland, oddly, has two national tours. Uh, there's like a complex history of this that goes back to like World War II with um, one is Romandy's in the French-speaking region. region. The tour of Switzerland is in the Swiss German region. There was some type of appeasement trying to go on uh, where they're trying to hold their neutral status. So they had, they put on two events. Uh, I'll have to dig out. I read a story on that like 12 years ago. I'll have to dig that out and brush up on it. Maybe update everyone. But it was a 4K uh, prologue. I think Romandy uh, always starts with this like deliciously short prologue. Rowan Den- Dennis did it in five and a half minutes. So he's almost going. You know, he's going like 55 k an hour for this thing. Totally ridiculous. Romandy is like a proud race. I was looking at the past winners. I mean, it's like Primoz Roglic is one of the last two editions. Richie Port, Nairon Quintana. You'll know Zacharin. Oof. Let's not talk about that. Chris Froome, Chris Froome, Bradley Wiggins, Cadell Evans, Valverde. I mean, it's just like a proud, proud race. There's nobody here. Um, and this kind of goes into like, cycling is becoming more of a training sport than a racing sport. People used to train into shape. Now it seems like, with especially with the COVID, if there was, there was no racing last summer due to COVID, everyone just had to train, and then they came back so fast. I mean, last year was like some of the fastest climbing times we've ever seen at the Tour, Tour de France. And I wonder if, if that has shifted the mentality where it's like, well, why do I have to go to the Tour of Romandy? Maybe that's not worth it. You know, maybe I'll just go to my own training camp in the Canary Islands, you know, where I can do whatever I want. I don't have to race through bad Swiss weather. That sounds kind of nice. Um, I I wonder if, if there's some type of shift here, some type of seismic shift. And Romandy is in, it's an odd time because it's too close to the Giro. The Giro is next weekend. 
not this coming weekend, but the weekend after. Um, so you couldn't really race it and then target the, the Giro. You probably need to be starting to taper off at this point for the Giro d'Italia. Uh, and for tour, and so it really would be for riders doing the Tour de France, but it just doesn't, it just seems like a lot of those riders have shifted their priorities. Ineos, who used to be the groundbreaking team, you know, they were like the revolutionary team when they started. They're the only ones that are kind of sticking to this Romandy schedule for the tour. Um, it's funny to see Ineos become the old school team that's like almost stuck behind the times. I mean, they they have the the first, second, third rider in the race today. Roten Dennis won, Garrett Thomas got second, Richie Port gets third. I mean, they are the best three riders here by a long shot. Um, their teammate, Philippe Bogana, had a terrible day, 10th at 15 seconds back. I would say he's the fourth best, fourth best rider normally, but it uh, seems to be off the pace at the point at this point. But I don't see anyone on this list. I mean, this is a, it's like mountain stages every day. It's actually pretty. Or tomorrow is like a difficult sprint stage. It'd be interesting to see if Peter Sagan can win it. Um, it will be important to try to judge if he's up for another green jersey run at the tour this year. But really, besides that, every day is kind of a mountain stage. And then it finishes with the time trial. I mean, it's a funky race. It is a six-stage race with two time trials. Um, not exactly the most modern setup, I'd say. <laughs> You're trying to stoke excitement about your race. Um, possibly why Ineos is here, because it's a boring time trial-specific specific race. But I think, so there's just, I mean, this is, a, this is not... We don't need to follow this race closely. Um, I will be. I will be watching every stage, but that's only so you guys don't have to. Um, really, I'd say the only interesting thing here is uh, to see if Garrett Thomas can climb. The guy has not been climbing well really since 2019 um, and really hasn't been climbing at a world-class level since 2018 when he won the Tour de France. So we'll actually get a nice little profile here. You'll get a sneak peek to see, is he actually going to be able to compete at the Tour this year? Um, that'll be something that's really interesting to watch. Another thing that's interesting is, so Rowan Dennis has the lead right now. I could see Rowan Dennis, if, if Ineos wanted, if Ineos was willing to let him, I bet he could win this race overall. Um, I, he's a great climber. He just doesn't seem to have the mental fortitude to compete at a three-week grand tour as a general classification rider, but that'll be something that's really interesting to watch. Um, and Richie Port as well. I mean, it's, it's, on paper, this is a boring race because it's three guys from the same team dominating, but there's tension between these riders. I mean, don't, don't be fooled by any PR where it's like, we're just here to support each other. But, you know, Richie Port, he's a great rider. He's a proud rider. He got third at the Tour last year, you know, behind two, two incredible Slovenian riders. So I'm, sh I'm sure that he wants to win this race. Um, it, it's going to be really interesting to watch how that, those dynamics played out between Ineos. The only... we. Catalonia stunk. Um, same thing where it was three Ineos riders on the podium. But that's really just because Adam Yates was so much better than everyone else that there wasn't even really any intrigue inside of Ineos. Um, Ghana, a little concerned that he's so bad. I was obsessed with the guy. He won eight straight time trials, and now I don't know what's going on. We need to get that guy right. I thought he was going to have a great Giro d'Italia. Um, he probably read the newsletter too much and thought, oh, I could win the Tour de France and started training differently, and that's why he's off this year. Um, Sepp Kuss, Sepp Kuss keeps getting these chances to lead um, the Sepp Kuss, Kuss Mafia on Twitter. Every time he's in a big race and he's, his, his mouth is closed on the climb, they say, well, he should be the leader that Yumbo. They need to let him, let him free, let him race for himself. And then whenever he gets a chance to race for himself, he's not very good. So he really dropped the ball at Catalonia. Um, Yumbo's going to need something to see something from him here if, if he wants to you know, effort lead a team at a stage race again. So uh, he had a bad, bad prologue but he's really he's only 16 seconds back so if he if he really turned it on and had a great climbing week he could win this race um that will be interesting to watch him let's talk about chris Froome. he got 130th out of 140 riders um if you read velanus you'd think chris Froome is a favorite for the tour de france you know velanus is a piece every day saying chris Froome is building up to the tour things are on schedule I, I don't know why they keep just running these quotes from him and his team saying things are going great at this point chris Froome can't go to the Tour de France. I mean, that's bad to get 130th out of 140th riders as a time trial specialist. There's something not right there. He is not coming along. He almost seems to be worse than he was last year. You know, if you remember last year, he was not this bad. He's been very bad this year. Um, so 
any you know, Israel startup nation brought him over for 5 million euros a year. He's the highest paid rider on the team by a, by a long shot. And there's going to start to be tension on that team. If, you know, if he's still the leader, if he's the leader at races and he can barely finish, um, if he gets selected for the tour de France, I mean, that's going to be tension in the team because every, every tour member of that tour team is going to be looking at him thinking, well, Someone else on the team could could have been this spot. You know, you're off the back every day. Like, what are you doing? You're not helping us. Like, you're just dead weight. And so this is this is going to be a tough week for him, I think, because the the closer we get to the tour, I mean, the less potent the conver- the talking point of well, I'm building to the tour. You know, um, we saw with like the Lance Armstrong documentary where during the comeback with Astana, which I loved by the way, I'm I'm not above saying that I was obsessed with the Lance comeback. He said he knew at training camp that it was a bad idea. The first training camp he went to with Astana, he was regretting the comeback. I wonder if we'll get something similar from Froome in like five or 10 years where we'll get the real story of what's going on with this. Um, that it's probably a pretty fraught situation in, in his own circle as well as with the team. But don't buy the hype on that. Don't, don't read these Villeneuve pieces about Chris Froome being on track for the tour because it's not true. It's like borderline. It's like... It's really bad journalism that they're writing that. Um, but well, I'll be uh, I'll be doing a few newsletters about Roman D. Well, I'll be watching that Dennis Thomas and Port battle. Actually, pretty interested to watch it as this week goes on. And uh, so, if you want to read that, check that out at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. And I'll be back next week. I skipped last week. Had a, had a little bit of uh, vacation with the family, buying and selling a house, so a little bit hectic. But I'll be back next week with another podcast and we'd be talking about how Romandy ended up shaking out. So have a great week and enjoy the cycling. Thank you. Bye.